This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 354, a conversation with Tom Brevoort. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman, and today we're having an interview with uh, Marvel Executive Editor Tom Brevoort as he sits down to talk about his career with Marvel, um, upcoming projects, old projects he's worked on, uh, the the uh, high, highs and lows of his career with Marvel. Um, some really interesting stuff. I was really glad that we were able to uh, to get Tom on the show, and he was gracious enough to uh, to spend some time with us. Uh, it's over an hour and a half long, so I'm really, again, very appreciative of Tom's time uh, and his generosity uh, with that time. Obviously, he's a very busy guy with his fingers in a lot of different pies, but uh, we were able to get him for an hour and a half or more, actually, uh, to talk about his, his amazing career. It really is quite something to look at all the different projects he's been involved in and had a you know a guiding hand in um just off the top of my head you know uh, untold tales of spider-man uh which is big i've always been a huge fan of that book uh he was obviously hugely involved with uh avengers by kurt busick and george perez um thunderbolts uh a lot of the you know events in the last decade you name it uh he's been involved in it so i'm really glad that we're able to have tom on the show if you'd like to email us at comic shenanigans you can do so at comic shenanigans at gmail.com. You can like the show's Facebook page. You can also rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and you can also listen to us on Stitcher. Uh, we have some great episodes coming up uh, in the future. Uh, we've got episodes coming up in the next couple months with Jam de Mateus. Um, uh, now I'm blanking. Uh, Dennis Hopeless is going to be on the show. Uh, Dan Abnett, uh, Christos Gage is uh, scheduled. Uh, we should be getting Paolo Rivera on the show. So uh, a lot of really good stuff. David Michelini is going to be on the show. So uh, definitely a lot of really great content to look forward to over the course of the next couple of months. Uh, so thanks again for listening to this episode. Let's j- jump right on in as we have a conversation with Tom Brewert, Executive Editor at Marvel Comics. But before we do just that, I also want to give a quick shout out and thank you to some of the listeners uh, of the show that have uh, submitted questions for uh, Tom in this episode. I particularly want to thank Century 459 for the Marvel Masterworks Forum, as well as Hogan, uh, D'Lo Tempio, uh, Muldoon, uh, Shotzi, and I believe that was everyone who submitted questions. So thank you very much for submitting questions for the episode. And, um, yeah, it was very much appreciated, and we try to integrate them as much as possible. Um, not all of your questions were integrated, but most of them were. So uh, without further ado, I promise, now for real, we're getting into the conversation with Tom Brewart. All right, Tom, thank you for joining Comic Shenanigans today. How you doing? Doing very well. Um, we're really excited to have you on the show today. Um, first question we ask everyone is, what uh, what first got you into comics? What was your kind of your intro to comics when you were younger? Well, uh, when I was young, and uh, this is uh, you know, very young, about six years old, uh, my dad uh, smoked. Uh, he smoked a lot. He smoked, uh, you know, two packs a day kind of a smoking habit. Consequently. Uh, he would often go out to buy cartons of cigarettes. And on some trip to our local 7-Eleven, uh, for whatever reason, and I've never put it together, you know, like why this would be the case, um, on this particular day, uh, the comic book spinner rack, rather than being you know, more towards the back of the store, uh, where you typically would have it with the rest of the magazines, it was instead at the front of the store, 
near where the you know checkout was and so forth. Um, that's a terrible place to put it because I'm sure uh, there was there was plenty of uh, 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 five finger discounts going on as people could just pick up books and walk out the door with them. Uh, any any event, I saw the rack there and uh, you know my gaze was drawn to it. And my dad said, Do you, you know, you want a comic? And I said, yeah, sure, of course. <laughs> I'm going to say no. <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, we bought what was my first comic, Superman 268. What happened in that comic? Uh, among other things, uh, uh, you know, Batman, being a good friend to Superman, set Clark Kent up uh, on a blind date with Barbara Gordon, who was then... Uh, a congresswoman in uh, uh, Washington, D.C., where Clark was going to cover something. So uh, uh, Clark and Barbara got to, got to go out together, uh, and you also got a team-up between uh, Superman and Batgirl as they fought, you know, a bunch of non-entities in this, uh, this short 14-page story. <laughs> but it had an impact on you. Uh, it, 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 well, it, it certainly did. Uh, you know, I... Uh, yeah, it was the first of many. Now, what, what, um, when did you start reading more Marvel comics? Well, I tell you, <laughs> you're, you're asking accidentally loaded questions. Okay. Um, you know, when I started reading, uh, you know, I was mostly, initially, mostly uh, a DC guy, and specifically, although I didn't really realize it at the time, specifically a Julie Schwartz guy, that all the books that Julie edited were the books that I liked and gravitated to, whether that was Superman and Action Comics or The Flash or Justice League of America, you know, what have you. That flavor was the flavor that as a six-year-old or seven-year-old, I really liked. Uh, you have to understand and realize a couple of things about the Marvel Comics of 1973 and 1974. Um, thing one, they were all continued from issue to issue, mm. uh, which was a bad thing if you were a kid who didn't ever know if you were going to get another issue of a given title. Um, you know, thing two, um, quite often, uh, and it was almost like, uh, you know, clearly somebody editorially was doing it, if not on purpose, then very, very uh, uh, you know, often by accident, uh, would tend to put the the end of the issue on the cover. So if you're, you know, your cover would be, you know, it's Spider-Man and Doc Ock is throwing him out of a helicopter to his apparent death. And you'd see that cover and you'd go, wow, I wonder how he gets out of this. I'm going to pick up the comic and, and uh, you know, read it and enjoy it uh, and find out. Uh, and by the end of the comic, your last page would be Doc Ock throwing Spider-Man out of the thing. <laughs> and, you know, come back next month to find out. Uh, on top of that, I had bad luck, uh, which is that, you know, early on in my comic book buying, uh, you know, uh, quite often, you know, I would, would not be buying stuff for myself. It would just be somebody. My dad would be going to the 7-Eleven or wherever to get cigarettes, uh, you know, buy me a comic, bring me back a comic. And, and he would. And, you know, he, he brought back on occasion, you know, Marvel books. And they, you know, these weren't necessarily bad comics. But they were not good comics for me at six or seven. 
you know, I distinctly remember, uh, you know, uh, one of the ones was during the Steve Englehart, uh, you know, Captain America No More Nomad storyline. Oh. And, you know, first of all, that's a comic that's already written way over the head of any seven-year-old. It was also drawn by Frank Robbins, who had a very idiosyncratic style. Uh, and and you know sort of sort of harsh and sort of repellent looking to my young eyes, um, but really the plot of the issue, you know, Cap has become nomad, and during the course of the previous issue, this young kid from from uh, from Brooklyn, Roscoe, has adopted, decided he's going to be the new Captain America, and he's hanging out with the Falcon, and they run across the Red Skull, and the Red Skull beats him to death and crucifies him on the top. Of a, of a building, and this is the thing that drives Steve Rogers to realize he can't abdicate his responsibilities as Captain America. He has to pick the shield up again. Well, I didn't understand any of that <laughs> as a kid. <laughs> as far as I was concerned, I just saw a comic book in which a guy with a red skull killed the hero and strung him up on a, on a building. This was not the most welcoming entry into the Marvel Universe <laughs> that one could uh, wish for. And, you know, the, the, the couple of Marvel books that I sampled around that time all, all had something like that going on in them. Like, they were just, uh, you know, they would, they would end in a cliffhanger. Uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the style of the storytelling wasn't to my liking. Uh, and, and so I was just like, I was an anti-Marvel guy uh, in my youth for years. Uh, you know, I was, I was full on, a full-on DC reader. Um, you know, to the point where, as I got interested in the history of comics, and you know, got books like Jules Pfeiffer's *The Great Comic Book Heroes* or Jim Steranko's *Steranko History of Comics*, I would actually not even read the chapters <laughs> devoted to the Marvel stuff because I didn't like it. So I, you know, why would I? Why would I read that? Um, and so, you know, it was a couple of years later when, during one summer. I was, you know, I was bored whatever day it was, and I actually read <laughs> the chapters, uh, you know, in the great comic book heroes, which had a Human Torch story, and a Submariner story, and a Captain America story, and the Stranko history of comics, and it intrigued me enough to go, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm being short-sighted, maybe, uh, you know, my earlier experiences shouldn't, uh, you know, shouldn't color my whole world. Uh, maybe I should check this out again. Uh, and you know, so I liked the Human Torch story. So I went out, and uh, there was a there was a drugstore near to me that had a big bin of comics, uh, and they were all Marvel comics. You know, I know that because uh, you know, in the weeks before this, I had dug through the entirety of that bin <laughs> and found the one and only copy of Action Comics that happened to accidentally get stuck in there by mistake, uh, you know, to, to be in there. Uh, and, you know, what I, again, what I've since sussed out is that these were all books that were affidavit returns. These were all books that, uh, on the books, uh, were, you know, were, were said to have been destroyed uh, and not sold, and were instead sold off the back of the truck to whoever the buyer was at this drugstore chain. Uh, and so they had this big bin of comics, and they were all a 
bunch of months old, and they were selling them at like six for a dollar or five for a dollar, depending on when you went. So, uh, you know, the next time I had an opportunity to get to this drugstore, I went digging through, and I pulled up three consecutive issues of Fantastic Four, and that's really my my real entree into the Marvel Universe proper is Fantastic Four, 177 to 179. Um, and then, you know, I, I liked those, and I went back uh, you know, afterwards and bought three consecutive <laughs> issues of Marvel's Greatest Comics featuring the Fantastic Four, and I started off, and then I was a Fantastic Four reader. So, like, literally, there's a period of time there where I was reading all the DC heroes and Fantastic Four, but only Fantastic Four. <laughs> uh, you know, and I branched out from there slowly. Uh, you know, I was interested in reading the first Fantastic Four story, uh, and my local library had, you know, uh, had a pretty good for, you know, for the mid-70s, uh, a pretty good... Uh, section of books on comics. You know, whatever books there were on comics that existed in that period, they had copies of them. And so I went intending to find a copy of Origins of Marvel Comics so I could read the first Fantastic Four story. I could not find Origins of Marvel Comics. Uh, it never, uh, it never showed up. Um, so I don't know if somebody just took it and and uh, you know <laughs> never returned it or whatever. But they, it never showed up there. Uh, however. Uh, there was a copy of Son of Origins of Marvel Comics. And flipping through it, and this is literally the extent of my disdain, even though I was intrigued and interested, uh, the reason I checked out Son of Origins of Marvel Comics, uh, which I should point out was for free because it was a library book, (laughs) was that the Fantastic Four appear in like three panels of Avengers number one. (laughs) <laughs> and they were in there, and I went, ah, okay, what the heck? I'll, 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 I'll check this out, and and what the heck? So, you know, in that book, you know, I read the first X Men story, and I read the first Iron Man story, and the first Avengers story, the first Daredevil story, and you know, then from there, uh, you know, started to slowly pick up the current issues. So it was probably around 1978, uh, you know, maybe even early 1979 before I was a real regular Marvel reader. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to the chronology for a minute, but um, what, what comics being published today by any publisher do you think that you at that time would have enjoyed? Oh, I, uh, <laughs> Knowing what your tastes were. That's a that's a very good question. I know that there's nothing published by DC. Right? Well, I, I want to say nothing because uh, they certainly have, uh, you know, their 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 line of, of books aimed at a younger audience. Maybe there would have been something in there that would have worked for me. But uh, you know, every every comic that everybody is publishing today, so many of them are much more sophisticated than anything I was reading in in 1973, 1974. Um, you know, it's 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 hard to say, uh, quite honestly. Um, I'm not, I'm, I'm genuinely not sure. It's a good question. Nobody's ever asked me that before. Well, at least I can get there first. <laughs> um, now, how did you end up actually in the industry then? Cause that's a big jump between, you know, you're growing up, you're a big fan of DC, then you slowly start your, your you know, putting your, your toe into the pool of Marvel. What, what, how did you end up at Marvel working? Well, um, you know, I, I, uh, even before I was reading Marvel Comics, 
I, uh, you know, I was interested in, you know, doing comics, you know, like, like, like any kid who was, you know, reading comics, I started making my own comics. Uh, yeah, and all of my own comics were, were incredibly derivative of the stuff that I was reading. Uh, and, you know, I was only single digits old. So You're forgiven. Uh, yeah, so, so, so it's understandable. Um, but this was always just a thing that I did, uh, and, and always kind of a trajectory that I was on. You know, I was, I was going to do comics. I was going to get into the field, um, you know, more at that point as a creator than anything. Um, you know, and I, so, you know, I spent, uh, you know, my years in my, in my, my teen uh, years doing, doing a lot of fanzines and doing what little networking there, there was and finding out as much as I could about how the industry worked and all this stuff. Um, and also, uh, you know, uh, building up a, an actual skill set as to being able to do this. Uh, I was an illustration major at the University of Delaware in their illustration program. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, was appealing about that program was the fact that the, the way the program worked was, you know, you kind of did your foundation courses, your your first two years, uh, and then you specialized in your junior year, and sometime between either the break between your junior and your senior year or something during your senior year, um, you were supposed to go and, and uh, do an internship with uh, you know, some organization, some, some company, some something, in some way, shape, or form kind of connected to the field. Uh, and during the, the initial orientation, uh, the the dean of the college, you know, expressed that you know we've you know we've had people you know go to here and we've had people do internships there and there and we even had one person who interned at Marvel Comics and I thought to myself, well, okay, that's that's uh, that's what I will do in three years uh, and so you know three years later or close to three years later, uh, I sent out inquiry letters to not just to Marvel but to Marvel and to DC. Uh, and uh, you know, I got a response from from Marvel, uh, and I got no response from DC. Uh, but I'm sure it's coming. <laughs> Every day, I go I go home. I, I, I take my train and I approach my mailbox with hope in my heart that this finally is the day when my internship uh, information will be returned. <laughs> um, so it's it's been a long 27 years. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but you know Marvel got back to me with all of of the deets and uh, you know I was able to qualify for that and and uh, you know come in here and so I interned at at, at Marvel uh, my uh, my senior year of college and uh, you know I say this uh, you know with with uh, this is going to sound a little aggrandizing uh, but. I was the best intern there was <laughs> uh, because I had I had a skill set that was way beyond what the ordinary intern walking in at that time possessed, uh, and I had the you know the drive and you know I was there to to to, to do the job, um, and I was there to, to to get my more than my foot in. Um, so it was uh, you know a very focused thing and you know any of the people for whom I interned or worked in that that era will tell you I was the best intern ever <laughs> uh, and I've spent the last 27 years you know constantly being promoted to new positions further away from that so I could get less good at what I was doing <laughs> um, 
but yeah, I would, I would, so I would, uh, yeah, I would intern at Marvel five days a week, and then I would work uh, a, a crappy fast food job on the weekends to generate enough money to still be able to, to make my way all the way through the, uh, the internship, and you know, between that and and uh, emptying out my bank accounts and, and getting down, I was able to, I was able to do it. Um, so, so that was really it. But you know, my intention was always was for years. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna do this. I sort of expected past a certain point that what I'd end up doing is really very much the kind of thing that that uh, you know Brian Bendis ended up doing. You know, I'd be working some sort of a day job and I'd be making comics uh, on the side. Uh, you know, in a in a, a more independent. Uh, sort of a, a landscape, and then maybe I'd get some good breaks, and yeah, something would happen. So it wasn't specifically planned that I would get into editorial and do uh, what I do now, but uh, it was a pretty good fit, and it was pretty apparent that it was a pretty good fit uh, from the from the point when I first came up to here, or what was then here. That was good. like four buildings ago, so <laughs> it's not here anymore. Now, the, what was the first book you'd edited? Directly edited? Yeah. I mean, I worked on a lot of stuff, uh, you know, as, as assistant editor uh, and so forth. The first actual thing I put out, you know, that was edited by me uh, was a Jim Lee Marvel Comics poster book in 1991, I'm going to say, 1990, 91, uh, before X-Men number one, but after the point that Jim was drawing X-Men and was, was becoming a big star. And the thing that I remember about that is that it was on the schedule, Marvel's production schedule of the era, as it's a Jim Lee poster book. You know, we're going to get these, these pieces and we're going to make this big poster book out of Jim Lee's stuff. It was called the Jim Lee poster book. It was listed as a Jim Lee poster book. And myself and the designer... Uh, Joe Kaufman put it all together as the Jim Lee poster book, and they went to be sent out, and somebody went, ah, you can't do that. You can't call it the Jim Lee poster book. It's got to be the Marvel Comics poster book. Uh, <laughs> so we had to tear all that up and <laughs> go back to ground. Uh, but I remember Jim actually uh, loaned us, loaned me uh, the original art for four or five pieces. They were, you know, Punisher covers and things that he'd done a little earlier uh, you know, for which he wanted to get a good good reproduction on, and he still had the originals, so he sent them back into the office, and we shot him again for that book. Wow. Which was well, very we, nice of him. What was the response to the book? Um, I don't know. The, you know, fan response in those days was difficult to gauge, or more difficult to gauge than it is today, because, uh, you know, while there was an Internet, it, it wasn't anything. Uh, so, you know, you got real mail. You got letters. Uh, but you really only got letters to books that had letters pages or a place to, to write to. Uh, you know, a poster book didn't really get mail per se. But as far as I can tell, it sold well, so that's nice. I suspect it had a lot more to do with Jim than it did with me. <laughs> well, maybe. Maybe just selling yourself short. <laughs> maybe. I don't think so. So you so you you were assistant editor. You're working on other titles. What was the first kind of main regular book that they kind of entrusted you with? Um, the first actual title I edited, real comic book title I edited, was Deathlock. Um, I had worked on the the Deathlock limited series, the prestige format limited series uh, first. Uh, this was the the Dwayne McDuffie, Greg Wright, uh, Butch Geist, Dennis Cowan Deathlock. Okay. Um, and, and so it was going to be an ongoing series. 
Uh, and Bob Budiansky actually really uh, did most of the editing on the first issue or two uh, because he was going to be the editor. Uh, and at a certain point, you know, I got promoted up from assistant to uh, was then called managing editor and would now be called associate editor. And, and so uh, as associate editor, you needed to have one title. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a coin toss as to whether he was going to give me Deathlock or NFL Super Pro. <laughs> and he kept NFL Super Pro, and the reason was he, uh, uh, you know, it had been indicated to him uh, by people at the NFL uh, that you know, because he was working on the on the book and was you know connected and so forth, uh, that they could get him Super Bowl tickets. Uh, and I don't think that ever happened. <laughs> but you know, the long story short was I got I got Deathlock rather than Super Pro, uh, which was a pretty good trade. Um, uh, that having been said, I killed that book Stone Cold Dead, so uh, maybe not such a good trade. Why do you say you killed it Stone Cold Dead? Well, this was a you know this was an era the early '90s where you could sell just about anything, and Deathlock ran for 34 issues, I think it was. But it it uh, you know, I made a bunch of mistakes as as you do when you're starting out as a, as an editor, don't really know what the hell you're doing. Uh, I made a bunch of mistakes, and and none of them helped. Uh, uh, you know the book's longevity. Uh, you know that that book didn't necessarily have to end as quickly as it did. And uh, as the editor, I'm responsible for that. And as the guy that made those missteps that did not help it to go on, you know, I'm responsible for all that, too. So where did you kind of move afterwards? I mean, so that title ends. I think, did you go into the spider office at that time? Not quite yet. Uh, You know, where I I was, even while I was working on that book, uh, like I say, I I was the managing editor, uh, and Bob Budiansky's area was what was then called special projects. Uh, and what Buddha did, and people who worked under Buddha, myself included, uh, really was anything that wasn't a standard uh, comic book. Um, so, so we did all the licensing art. You know, today Marvel has an entire division devoted to providing art for for uh, you know licensed uh, properties, licensed goods. Uh, and you know, back in the day, that was just. Buddha and me, um, you know, we did uh, all the Marvel press posters, you know, which was four posters uh, every quarter. Uh, we did uh, a lot of movie adaptations, uh, and you know, most famously, we did trading cards. Uh, you know, we we uh, yeah, we started the Marvel trading cards and did them for the first bunch of years as they became super huge and super successful to the point where they became a whole company unto themselves, and they didn't need Buddha or me anymore. <laughs> um, so I was working on all of that sort of stuff. Oh, and the Marvel Masterworks. I had the Marvel Masterworks, too. Um, and then, you know, other, other assorted odds and ends projects would, would uh, you know, inevitably turn up. But I was doing all of that sort of stuff. What was it like being kind of the shepherd of the Marvel Masterworks program at that point in time? Because obviously it's, it's a long-running program. It's been running for a long time. But that was still relatively new, I, mean, I guess, in the first seven or eight years of the program. That was, that was very, very new. Uh, and in fact, it, the program ended under me. Uh, and then I was able to bring it back uh, a number of years later. Um, so I didn't, it, that wasn't the case where I killed it. That was just the case of the market wasn't quite there to the extent that you'd, uh, you'd want it to be. Um, you know, it was, it was good. I was, uh, you know, I was a real uh, you know, Marvel fan and Marvel historian by that point. Uh, and so I was a pretty good match for doing something like the Masterworks because I'd actually 
pay attention uh, to the to it and to the minutia of it maybe a little better than folks who had done other other uh, volumes that said there was there were there were stuff there were policies in place that I didn't always agree with uh, and so when I brought the books back I got rid of those policies <laughs> <laughs> and started to do the books the way I thought they should be done um, but uh, you know it was it was it was good and it, you know it, it lets you interact uh, you know with people I would call Stan up to, to get Stan to do uh, introductions to the various volumes I'd have to send him copies of all the stories and so forth and so you know that was good and at the same time I worked on the the boys ranch hardcover that Joe Simon and Jack Kirby uh, stripped from the 50s and so I got to interact with the, the both of them um, you know it was not exactly glamorous work uh, it wasn't anything that anybody was was uh, you know ready to ready to uh, consider a shining star it wasn't generating that much income and it, they were nice but uh, you know they were not particularly important to the to the overall operation or the bottom line or anything um, but uh, but I liked them now how did you manage to bring the program back this was just uh, you know the books went away because they weren't making money at a certain point and then a number of years later, and I'm going to say it was five, although it may have been a few more than that. You know, I always wanted to do more. Uh, you know, they had they had started reissuing the existing masterworks with a new trade dress, and by that point, I had been around enough that I understood the ins and outs of how Marvel operated a little better. And so I sat down with our uh, P&L guy, our profit and loss guy, the guy who would who would run P&L statements on projects to figure out how much will it cost to do, how much money does it have to make to be worthwhile, uh, and just, you know, went over the numbers with him until I could come up with a formula that seemed to indicate that there would be a good chance of success. Uh, you know, we would make X amount of money if you did it this way. And I took that and I, I went back to, uh, you know, the editor-in-chief at the time, who was Bob Harris, and the, the publisher at the time, and said, hey, look, I, I want to try, I want to try doing this. You know, we've got the 27 volumes or whatever it was that, we, that we've got, but, uh, you know, I think there's more to be done here. And so I did one volume that year. We did one new volume, which was a Fantastic Four volume. And, you know, it, it did exactly, uh, you know, what I needed it to do. And that meant that the next year I did three volumes. And then the year after that, we actually had a trade paperback program, and the whole thing got shifted over to to them and to the guys that have been doing it ever since. But, uh, you know, it's really, I mean, they might have brought it back anyway uh, at a certain point, but the fact that I restarted it <laughs> meant it was an active thing when all of that happened. And it was much easier to go, okay, we should keep doing this, and now 230 books later, uh, you know, you know, there's a, there's a big tonnage of material that's in hardcover. Absolutely, and there's a, a very dedicated community to those masterworks as well, so I, I would imagine they would thank you very much for bringing it back. Yeah, well, well, that and complain about the flaws in the earlier volumes. Well, I mean, that, that goes without saying, I think. Yeah, they actually, I mean, it, it, was, the, it was the predecessors to that community, uh, but one of the things that I did... Uh, when we were doing the, the the volumes that I did, was I sourced as much original art as I could. You know, like I would put the I would put the word out. Hey, I, I'm putting together Masterworks. It reprints, uh, you know, Fantastic Four 51 to 60. Um, so if you happen to be somebody out in the world who has pages from this original art that you have bought, you, then you'd be willing 
to you know scan or make me copies of. You know, I'll you know I'll give you a I can't pay you for it, but I'll give you a special thanks, and uh, you know uh, the book will be that much better, and it'll it'll you know serve everybody. And you know people people showed up, people came out with uh, with their original art. Um, there was one guy who owned the entirety of Fantastic Four fifty three. And sent me beautiful copies of the whole 20-page story. And so, you know, the printing in that first Masterworks was as good as that story had ever been printed, including the original printing. Um, you know, and since then, I think it's been better because the guys that work on Masterworks today, you know, have constantly been working to improve and to upgrade, you know, all of the earlier volumes and even all of the existing volumes as stuff gets better. You know, as the technology gets better and as the reproduction materials get, you know, more become more available to people, um, it's easier to do that. Well, can you tell me about Untold Tales of Spider-Man? How did that kind of come about? Um, Untold Tales of Spider-Man. Uh, came about because uh, in that particular uh, year, the year of five editor-in-chiefs, uh, they decided to try an experiment. You know, there, there was a lot of talk that the reason comics weren't selling on the newsstand or out in public was that they were too expensive. They'd gone up to a buck ninety-nine. Uh, and so Marvel decided to do a line of 99-cent comics, and the idea was they were going to do four of them, and one would be an X-Men book, and one would be a Spider-Man book, and one would be a Fantastic Four Slash Avengers book, and one would be a uh, you know Marvel Edge, a, a you know Daredevil slash Punisher slash Hulk slash all the Marvel Edge characters book. Uh, and by that point, I was in the the, the Spider Man area. Bob Diansky was at that point the the EIC of Spider Man, uh, and we decided that uh, you know the, the book we were going to do. Uh, was going to be Untold Tales of Spider-Man. Specifically, uh, you know, we sat down to figure out how to do a Spider-Man book that was going to that was going to matter or that was going to be distinctive, given that we had four Spider-Man titles at that point. Uh, and I think I, it's it's hard to remember all the specifics this long after the fact. Uh, but if he didn't come up with the original idea, he was certainly a strong and vocal proponent uh, uh, for it. Uh, my assistant at the time, Glenn Greenberg, uh, was was really big on the idea of doing stories, specifically stories set during uh, Spider-Man's college years. Um, and so, you know, we laid out that we were going to do Untold Tales of Spider-Man, um, and, uh, you know, we called uh, one or two people about that uh, and didn't get anywhere. And, uh, uh, you know, eventually I talked to Kurt, and uh, Kurt basically said, I don't want to... I don't want to. I don't want to pitch in a bake off. I don't want to be one of three guys writing a pitch. I'll certainly pitch on this, but I don't want to be, you know, one of three things that you're gonna you're gonna read. And so we agreed to that. And uh, you know, he pitched on Telltale's Spider Man, and you know, the iteration that he pitched was actually in high school rather than in college. But it was good. And it all it all worked. It all did what the book was supposed to do, and uh, was fun and engaging. So it didn't matter that it wasn't college anymore. Uh, you know, we sat down and, and we did that book. Um, and I forget exactly what it was specifically that motivated us to go to Pat Olaf. I do remember having to have Pat do like a sample page, how, how he would draw the, you know, the various Spidey characters. Um, because I think, uh, if I'm remembering right, and it's been a long time, uh, you know, he at that point had been doing a lot of stuff. Uh, in the Ralph Macchio office, doing doing uh, uh, you know being sort of second chair on Thor, doing backups and villain issues, and he had sort of he was seen as having a sort of more Buscema sort of big chested 
uh, superhero uh, 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 feel to his work, and people were concerned that that uh, his Spidey wouldn't be spidery enough, um, and so he only did the sample piece, and it was fine, and and uh, you know he got the gig, and away we went. Did the, that book, so it lasted about I think twenty five issues. Yeah. Um, was it just the finances didn't work to kind of support the book anymore? I guess that was kind of during the, the lean years. Well, it's not even, it, you know, some of it is, it was the lean years, and some of it is, you know, a couple of things. For one thing, that experiment that I mentioned about, well, we want to make a 99-cent book for the newsstand, didn't work out that way, because it turned out that the newsstand distributors didn't want to be bothered stocking a 99-cent book on which they'd only make half as much money mm. as a $1.99-cent book. So, in fact, the version of those titles that went to the newsstand, they were doubled up. They were done as like a flip book. So they would take one of my, uh, you know, uh, Untold Tales issues and one of Bob Harris's X-Men issues, let's say, and and combine them in a single book for buck ninety nine. Those were only ninety nine cents in the comic shops. Um, you know, consequently, uh, you know, uh, it also had you know a much tighter profit margin because you're just you're bringing in less money. It's you know it's not like it costs any less than producing a dollar ninety nine book. But you're only making half the money, and out of that half the money, the costs remain the same. So it is a very difficult, um, a very difficult nut to crack in terms of keeping that profitable. Um, plus, the moment had just passed for it; it ran 25 issues, it had done its thing, uh, and uh, you know by that point, uh, you know, the five editor in chiefs were gone, and uh, you know, Bob Harris was the the one new editor in chief at that point, uh, and it, you know it ended its run. Uh, not with any malice, just because you know, the, the, you know, it, it, it just kind of run its course. As someone who you know likes continuity and the, and the kind of the history of of comics and of the titles themselves, um, that the Untold Tales kind of scratch a particular itch that you really enjoyed, especially uh, working with Kurt as well. Well, certainly. I mean, Kurt and I for for a period of about I don't know, you know, six or seven years there. Uh, you know, uh, Kurt and I were very much sort of the two musketeers that almost everything he did up at Marvel uh, and most of the most successful stuff he did up at Marvel after a certain point uh, was done with me because he and I were very simpatico. We, we thought a lot of, in a lot of the same ways and uh, we complimented each other pretty well. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we spoke a, sim- a similar enough language that and wanted the same sorts of things in our, in our uh, comics that it was a very easy... Uh, uh, you know, partnership. Uh, you know, and he could he could make reference to something in some obscure old Human Torch story from 1962. Um, you know, as part of a, an Untold Tales of Spider-Man idea, and I would know what he was talking about. <laughs> uh, yeah, that made it, that made it much easier to to do the book than it might have with somebody else. Um, so yeah, that was it was a it was a great deal of fun to do, uh, and it certainly uh, you know really. Uh, uh, cemented that uh, that that editor uh, creator relationship between myself and Kurt. That you know we went on to leverage and Thunderbolts and Avengers and all sorts of other stuff afterwards. Now I have to ask about Thunderbolts. I'm a huge fan of the title since it started. What was kind of the earliest genesis of what became that, or how did that even come about? I mean, it was it's such an interesting book because it you know it couldn't happen today just with the way social media is having that surprise at the end. Um, it's kind of oh you oh you'd be surprised you can still you can still pull I mean you can pull a surprise true uh, today you know it's just you got to realize that the closest that you can get is if the book ships on Wednesday people are going to be talking about your ending on Monday yeah 
But apart from that, I mean, that was true even with the original Thunderbolts. There just wasn't enough social media for those people, those people's voices to be really uh, heard widespread. The earliest, earliest, uh, you know, version of Thunderbolts was an idea that Kurt had had himself uh, years earlier. That was just sort of one of his bucket ideas that he'd come up with on some long car trip about, uh, you know, the Avengers over, the, over a period of time. Uh, you know, bringing, inducting new members in, uh, you know, to replace guys who were, you know, going off on leases of absence or, or what have you, as the Avengers typically uh, would. And then, you know, one day, you know, Hawkeye or whoever was left would wake up uh, and would uh, realize that all the guys that they brought in were actually the masters of evil, and, and that was a problem. Um, but really, it was uh, Heroes Reborn that set the stage for. Uh, Thunderbolts. Um, you know, Heroes Reborn was happening. Uh, the the company had decided to outsource to uh, Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld to uh, I guess it was Extreme Studios and and the Homage Studios. Uh, you know, most of the core central Marvel universe. So the Fantastic Four, the Avengers, Iron Man, uh, Thor, the Hulk, Captain America. All of those characters were going over to Jim and Rob who were going to basically, uh, you know, start them all over from scratch, kind of in their own world. Uh, you know, and the, you know, we, the, there was a whole narrative conceit that was built, uh, which was the Onslaught storyline, in which all those characters, uh, you know, vanish into this blue ball. And uh, as far as the world at large is concerned, they're all, they're all dead and gone. And there is no, un, uh, no uh, uh, understanding uh, that they would ever be coming back, uh, because literally there was no understanding that they would ever be coming back. Um, and so, uh, you know, there was a, a retreat. We did a Marvel editorial retreat uh, right around the beginning of Heroes Are Born, after it had been announced, but before it was really running, um, to kind of figure out, okay, publishing-wise, what what uh, you know, what kind of things can we do? We suddenly have a big hole in the center of our Marvel universe. What can we do to fill it? And you know, uh, Kurt was coming to this retreat, uh, and in the week or the week and a half before uh, you know, before uh, the thing actually happened, uh, you know, he started talking to me about this idea that he'd had uh, for the Masters of Evil, but uh, you know, using it, uh, using it in the here and now, and taking advantage of the fact that the Avengers aren't around anymore, the Fantastic Four aren't around anymore, and there are really no. Uh, you know, bright, publicly acceptable heroes who are left. Uh, and that, you know, kind of became Thunderbolts. And, and, you know, we talked about it enough in the week before that the first night of the retreat, uh, you know, uh, hanging out in the, the, the hotel bar after the day's, uh, you know, sort of, you know, intro, introduction and so forth, uh, you know, he pitched it with me to Bob Harris and Bob, you know, approved it right then and there. Um, and then, uh, you know, we just got, again, we got to work and we designed all the characters and, uh, you know, we put the whole thing together and, and out it came. When the Avengers returned to being controlled by Marvel directly and as part of the kind of the, the, the hero's return kind of banner, uh, you kind of became the Avengers editor. Uh, the kind of the Avengers family of books. Uh, how did you? Was it a, kind of a, a foregone conclusion to you that Busick had to be writing Avengers? No, 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 no. It actually happened the other way around. Um, you know, I wasn't supposed to get Avengers. Uh, you know, I was I wasn't that trusted as, <laughs> as an editor at that point. 
um, you know, when when uh, Heroes Return was going to happen, when those characters and those things were going to come back, uh, Kurt was going to write Iron Man, and I was going to edit Iron Man, uh, and that was going to be the, the way of it. And what happened was uh, uh, Ralph Macchio had spoken to George Perez uh, about coming back and, and doing Avengers again. Uh, and George was interested in doing Avengers again, but he didn't feel like he was in a position at that point to write it himself. He'd been writing a lot of his material, you know, over the years beforehand, doing, you know, Wonder Woman and uh, uh, yeah, things of that nature. But he felt like he'd been away from the Marvel Universe long enough that he didn't really know it. I know what was going on with know where all the characters were in a way that he felt comfortable uh, doing. So he basically said, like, yeah, he'll, he'd do it, he'll do it. But he, he wanted either Mark Wade or Kurt Busiek to write it. Uh, and so they spoke to Kurt, and Kurt said, oh, yeah, I'll do that, but I really want Tom to edit it. Uh, and so they came to me and they said, well, here's what's going to happen. We're going we're gonna to give you Avengers, but we're going to take Iron Man back. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to give that to, to Bobby Chase. And I kind of went, okay, then that's, that's fine. Um, you know, but that's, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the Heroes Reborn, uh, Heroes Return, rather, the Heroes Return Iron Man armor uh, was actually designed you know, on my watch by, by uh, yeah, under, under you know, my guidance and Kurt's guidance. Uh, by uh, by Sean Chen, who I, I hired for that book. Um, so uh, even though I didn't edit a single issue of Iron Man during that run, uh, you know, a little a little tiny bit of my hand was still was still there at the outset. Um, so yeah, I got I got Avengers because they wanted Kurt to do it and they wanted George to do it. Um, I worked with George a little bit in the past. Um, and so, you know, again, that just became, you know, here, here we are, here, we're, we're, we're doing a book, there's a lot of pressure on it, uh, you know, let's go and let's succeed. Well, and you obviously did. I mean, I, I think a lot of people still kind of point to that as being like a, a very classic Avengers type of story, but more modern. But, I mean, it's, it's really well done. So, I mean, it was a good team, for sure. Well, uh, you know, thank you very much. Uh, it certainly was, a, was a, a good team and a good moment. And, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we hit it well and everybody worked hard and, uh, you know, we made something good out of it. We actually have a, a listener question that this kind of dovetails into. Uh, they asked, uh, did you think that uh, Silverclaw and Triathlon lived up to your expectations? Um, yes and no. Um, you know, obviously, you know, the best thing that would have happened is we would have introduced new Avengers characters that would have been wildly successful and that everybody would have loved and that would have been huge characters for the Marvel Universe going forward. And that didn't really happen. Um, you know, that said, they're perfectly fine characters. They've all made appearances since those Avengers days. And there's nothing wrong with, you know, taking a shot at something and it not working out. You know, the, the thing that we do in making comics uh, and telling stories is not science it's alchemy it's it's magic fair enough um i do want to ask um i'm I'm a huge fan of avengers forever so uh, what can you tell me about how that book even happened i mean it was running alongside kurt's run on avengers um i i think it's one of my favorite avengers stories it's i'm a continuity lover i definitely was raised in that era when you know you're taught to really you know respect continuity and, and love it and almost too much I admit, and so that's kind of like a continuity orgy uh, right. of so much stuff in that book. How did that kind of happen? Uh, it happened a couple of different ways. Uh, you know, it started out uh, because uh, Carlos Pacheco, 
uh, was finishing his run on X-Men and was interested in doing Avengers. Uh, he was a big, you know, super popular artist and very tight with uh, Bob Harris, who was the editor-in-chief. But at the time, we just relaunched Avengers with George, and I kind of wasn't looking for somebody to take over from George. Um, so uh, at a certain point, uh, uh, Carlos came over from uh, his home in Spain, and Kurt came uh, to the East Coast. It was probably for a convention around that time, and we piggybacked on the back of it. Uh, and, you know, we spent uh, some time here uh, uh, brainstorming a, a project that could be an Avengers project that the two of them could do, you know, uh, off to the side in addition to uh, the regular Avengers book. And what we ended up with was a project called Avengers World in Chains, which is not Avengers Forever. <laughs> Uh, a bunch of work got done on Avengers World in Chains, uh, and then all of a sudden, uh, it turned out that there was another Marvel project that was that was coming out at around that time that had a, a concept or had some elements that were similar enough to some of the things that we wanted to do in Avengers World in Chains that uh, you know, Kurt in particular felt like we can't just. It's you know it's just going to be the it, we're just going to be seen as as you know more of more of this we can't do this um, but by that point uh, we were already you know sort of on schedule and we were in a budget and uh, you know we had to do something <laughs> uh, so uh, we took uh, you know the very very basic idea uh, that Kurt had for a Kang story that we would have done in our second year probably on Avengers uh, and made it a full-on uh, big uh, big series uh, which became Avengers Forever uh, and uh, you know I'm, I'm glad that you know, you're not the only person who really really enjoyed it and I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that uh, Carlos did a, did a killer job on it uh, and Carlos is as big a, an Avengers fan and an Avengers historian uh, as anybody involved there. So he, he enjoyed, uh, you know, getting to, to play around with all of the, these formative moments uh, in the Avengers history. But uh, that series was a lot more haphazard behind the scenes than you probably realize reading it. Um, it all worked out. It all came together. Uh, you know, we figured it all out. But uh, at certain points, we were only a step, maybe two steps ahead of, of uh, you know, what people were reading in terms of knowing what the heck we were doing. Um, so it's kind of miraculous that it all, you know, worked out in the end. Um, you know, it, it was uh, it was quite a thing. When, uh, when when Busick, I guess, left Avengers, now how did how did he decide it was time to leave, or what was that? What did it look like? Um, well, again, you, you kind of more have to ask Kurt what was in his head. I can tell you only what I, you know, what I know of things, which is, you know, first George left. George left after 34. Um, you know, he'd, he'd done a solid three years on it. Uh, he'd gotten, you know, and was getting the offer to go do cross-gen stuff, and that was a very good offer for him. Um, and, uh, you know, so, uh, uh, you know, he wrapped up his run. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, Kurt decided at that point to stay on. He and I had talked about a bunch of the stuff that would come afterwards in terms of, you know, setting the Avengers up in a slightly different place, being slightly more proactive, uh, and then going into the Kang Dynasty. Um, 
and he stayed on the Kang Dynasty and, and uh, you know, pretty much to the end of that, which is where he wrapped up his run. And uh, again, not to put words in, in his mouth, but I think uh, you know one of the one of the reasons for that is that by that point, uh, you know, Marvel was was hot and heavy into the new Ultimate line. Uh, and specifically the Ultimates proper. Like the Ultimates was kind of launching then or had just launched, it was about to launch, and you know, was really being positioned as here's here's the Avengers done right. Here's the Avengers done for a twenty first century audience. And I don't think Kurt felt that there was any great appeal to being the guy still on you know, Avengers done for a twentieth century audience or Avengers done wrong or Avengers done you know, whatever. Um uh, so, you know, it was also, he had done at that point, uh, you know, 56 issues, I think it was, um, you know, plus a bunch of annuals, plus Avengers Forever, plus a bunch of other, you know, sidereal uh, projects like, uh, uh, now forgetting the title of it, the Ultron one-shot we did. Um, oh, yeah. Know, so, hmm. yeah, so he had, you know, he'd done a lot of Avengers uh, at that point, and uh, so I think all that combined, uh, you know, for just to be time, you know, time to uh, time to bring the run to an end, and time to move on to other things. But again, you know, that's all that's all from my vantage point. Uh, you know, he will a he will remember it much better than I do, <laughs> uh, because his memory for this kind of stuff is way way sharper than mine. Uh, you know, there's just been too much of it over the years for me to keep it all straight. Uh, and two, you know, he could speak for what was in his head much more than I can. <laughs> When he left, I mean, obviously left a big vacuum for the book because he'd been on it since you'd relaunched it. How did you, what was the process look of uh, trying to find the next writer? Um, it was actually pretty simple, <laughs> honestly. Uh, it was maybe the simplest thing I ever did, uh, which, you know, given your, given your lead-in, uh, uh, you know, is sort of funny. Um, you know, about somewhere between three and six months before that point, uh, and there was a conversation uh, that went on, and there's a there was a uh, an Avengers mailing list that uh, a bunch of of you know, long time hardcore tried and true real died in the wolves Avengers fans uh, had run and had established for many years, um, and I was on that list at the time. You know, I'd been invited in to join. Uh, you know, when the book relaunched uh, with Kurt and George, and uh, you know, when I took over there, so I was always there, and I was always you know, following the conversation and so forth. And at some point uh, during it, uh, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the guys who was on that list uh, enthused about Jeff Johns' work on Justice Society and said, you know, JSA, and said, you know, Jeff would be, you know, I'd love to see Jeff write Avengers at some point. And, you know, the other light bulb went on over my head because I'd been reading JSA as well and was like, yeah, you know, that's, that's a really good fit. So literally I had in, on the corner of my desk uh, a little post-it, a little sticky note <laughs> that just had the words Jeff Johns on it um, that was there as my remember, remember to, to, to call Jeff Johns when Avengers opens up. Uh, and as it happened, um, again, a month or two before uh, Kurt decided that, that he was going to leave Avengers, I was at a convention. I'm going to say it was San Diego, but I don't can't swear it was San Diego. And Jeff came up to me at the Marvel booth, Jeff and Scott Collins. Uh, and I'd known Scott from when he was on staff at Marvel as one of Ramita's Raiders. 
uh, and they came up because they wanted to pitch a thing project, which we ended up doing. Um, you know, and and so at the point that Kurt left, I had the guy that I wanted to write Avengers next, and even though nothing had been published yet, he was already working with me. <laughs> so it was it was pretty simple to call Jeff up and go, Jeff, Avengers, what do you think? And and you know he was he was on board straight away. Um, so it was very very simple. Right around that time, you were also uh, editing Fantastic Four when Wade and Waringo came on the book. What was it like assembling that team? Because that's, again, one of those runs that is very fondly remembered now. Maybe, like, definitely in the last 15 years, definitely a favorite of the kind of FF teams. What was it like putting together that creative team? Well, that's, uh, yeah, I've said this before, that's, that's my favorite run of anything that I've worked on. That's, that's the magical one. And that's the one that every time out, you know, I try to duplicate that. Uh, and it's that for a couple of reasons. One, it was Fantastic Four. You know, uh, Fantastic Four was like the, the core Marvel book to me. That was the, that was the mountain to be scaled. Um, you know, and a couple of times, uh, you know, there were a couple of points where in the past I'd almost gotten Fantastic Four and didn't. Uh, there was a point where uh, again, much like with, with George on uh, uh, Avengers, uh, there was a point where when uh, Chris Claremont and Salvador La Roca were coming off of Fantastic Four, uh, Bob Harris wanted uh, Carlos Pacheco to do the book. And Carlos said, I would like Tom to edit the book. <laughs> uh, and this caused a lot of <laughs> agita up at the offices uh, until I went to Bob and said, look, Bob, you don't have to... <laughs> You don't have to give me, you know, give me the book. That's fine. Uh, you know, Carlos will probably most likely still do it if it stays right where it is with Bobby. It's not like he had any problem with Bobby Chase. He just was very comfortable working with me and my assistant at the time, Greg Schiegel, from Avengers Forever. That's not a big thing. But the next time that that book switches offices, if it doesn't come to my office, then I'm going to start breaking people's fingers. <laughs> um, you know, and uh, you know, a few months after that, when uh, you know uh, Bob was uh, was gone and Joe Casada came in as editor in chief, I told him very much the same thing: that you know, it's fine where it is, and that's great, and as long as it goes there, it's fine. But if that book moves from an office to another office, and the office it ends up in is not mine, people are gonna have broken bones. Um, and so eventually <laughs> the day came when they gave it to me, and then I had to figure out what the heck to do with it. Uh, and, uh, you know, we postulated myself and my assistants of the era, uh, postulated a bunch of different uh, uh, eventualities and things. Uh, and we actually ended up with Ringo first. Uh, and Ringo was, had been working on Superman at the time and, and uh, was feeling, I think, a little... Uh, ill at ease, like he, he, he felt like he was just, he wasn't in sync with either what was going on in the book or what the editorial team was and so forth, but by the same token, he was a little bit concerned about uh, doing Fantastic Four because he kind of felt like it was outside of his wheelhouse. It was so, it's such a, you know, such a Jack Kirby strip, strip and what he did visually wasn't really that. Um, and the conversation I had with him was uh, effectively, well, look, uh, you know, uh, Mike, uh, you know, after you drew the Flash, you know, you drew the Flash, and, and very quickly, 
you know, started to draw the Flash your way. You visualized a completely different version of the Flash than the guys who came before you. And after that, everybody that's come since you has drawn the Flash that way. That's what you do on Fantastic Four. Don't feel like you have to draw it in the style of Kirby or in the style of anybody as long as you draw it uh, 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 genuinely. Make it yours and make the guys that come after you draw it like you. Uh, and so he was comfortable with that. And then right around that same time was the point at which Mark was coming out of uh, his cross-gen contract and looking for something to do. And I called him up and said, do Fantastic Four. And he said, no, no, no. <laughs> I don't like Fantastic Four. Um, uh, he'd just never been a fan as a, as a, as a yeah, he'd read it, but he'd never been a big fan of the, of the series as a, as a reader. Uh, and I talked with him a little bit. And he went away for a day, and he came back a day later and was like, yeah, you know what, I think this and this and this and this. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we ended up doing Fantastic Four. And, uh, you know, I, I, I loved all of those books. What was, um, when, now I think, I, I can't remember exactly, but during the time, wasn't there, the, the, didn't the creative team almost change at one point? Oh, yes. Like oh, I, yeah. I, I, I feel would... like a lot of this recedes as history finally kind of goes through it. But I remember at the time there being a lot of a kind of a kerfuffle around there. Yes, there was a big kerfuffle um, <laughs> because uh, 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 at a certain point, uh, Bill Jemis, who was then Marvel's uh, president and publisher, decided he wanted to go in a different direction with Fantastic Four and hired another team to do Fantastic Four and fired Mark, and then Ringo quit. You know, to go with him, you know, sort of in solidarity. Uh, and then uh, before that could actually all really get implemented completely, uh, uh, Bill was, was out as president and publisher. Uh, and, you know, the decision was made to relent uh, and to, uh, you know, then convince Mark and, and Ringo to come back and do some more. Uh, which which I was able to do. Uh, and then, you know, the book that would have been the book that replaced Fantastic Four became Marvel Knights Four, uh, Roberto Sacasa and Steve McNiven. Um, so yeah, there was a there was a bit of drama, big drama about it at the time, um, because it was a it was sort of a fan favorite run uh, uh, that was getting torpedoed by uh, you know what Bill wanted to do, uh, and it was all carried out very publicly as was the as was the style of the time. <laughs> Now, this is kind of a random question that, and it's a little bit more sales related, so it may not be something you remember that well. But how well did when when they started their one? Um, they, I think there was the nine cent issue. How well did that promotion work? Um, it worked well. It didn't work as well as uh, I think uh, you know Bill hoped it would. Uh, which is to say, the numbers for Wade and Ringo's Fantastic Four went up. They were higher. They were significantly higher than the guys that came before then. But I think Bill was hoping that by doing the nine cent issue and by giving away all those things, and that, that was an extraordinary expense. Like he really put a lot of money on the line to do that. Uh, and he got a return on it, we got a return on it, but it wasn't as good a return as he had hoped. Um, and, or, and, and that may have actually gotten him in Dutch with uh, people that were above him. So, you know, it's very easy to make Bill out as just the bad guy in this. But uh, I suspect he was under his own uh, uh, pressures to, to uh, uh, make this thing work a little better because of the, the sort of uh, you know, branch he'd gone out on uh, and stuck his neck out on to do the nine-cent issue. So the, the real answer is, did the, the, the sales go up? Yes. Um, but they didn't go up enough to offset the cost of you know, however many, <laughs> 600,000 copies of, 
of Fantastic Four that nobody made any money on. Now, in the early 2000s, you also brought back the Thunderbolts, uh, first in the Avengers vs. Thunderbolts miniseries. How did you, how were you able to kind of get that going again? Because the book had ended, it had an odd ending in terms of how the, the book ended, and then suddenly we had this miniseries in, I think, 2004. How did you kind of shepherd that in and bring that back? That was the, I mean, that, 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 that was kind of the same thing. You know, Thunderbolts changed because Bill... Uh, you know, didn't like the the current iteration of Thunderbolts and wanted to do something different with it, um, and and it did again right at the end of his tenure, uh, and then uh, you know was uh, was out the door, uh, and you know when that happened at a certain point, uh, you know Joe Casada said to me, you know, hey, if you want to try and bring Thunderbolts back, uh, you know that I'd, I'd be cool with that. You should do that, um, and. And so I did. <laughs> you know, we did that. We did that. That those six issues as Avengers Thunderbolts. Uh, you know, both to have uh, use the Avengers name to hopefully uh, uh, you know, put some some uh, uh, some foundation uh, under us, uh, and uh, you know, also use it as an excuse to be able to bring Kurt back in as a, you know co-plotter uh, to work with Fabian, and you know, to to make this uh, more of an event than just hey, we're bringing that book back that went away a little while ago. Um, and you know, it worked out okay. The book kept going. So, uh, and, and really, the amount of time between the last uh, of the previous uh, iteration and that first issue of Avengers Thunderbolts, I think it was less than a year, even. Like it was, you know, there's almost no break in service. Because hmm. it just felt longer. Well, because I guess because the team obviously had gone in a different direction. So I think that's maybe why it felt like longer. Because sure, sure. Well, there were there were the you know the six issues. Of of uh, you know the 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 wrestling the the uh, uh, you know the full body uh, 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 fight club uh, Thunderbolt so for six months and then probably for promotion wise even longer uh, it, it had been something different so I can understand how that would feel to most people like longer my memory and my memory could just be playing tricks on me it could have been longer than I'm remembering but I remember it not being that that long since the previous version wrapped up which is kind of one of the reasons I was surprised that. That, that Joe immediately was like, "Oh yeah, if you want to, you want to try and bring that back, yeah, uh, we we can do that. We should do that." Now, I guess I have to ask, what was it like working on Avengers Disassembled? Um, working on Avengers Disassembled uh, was uh, painful, in a sense. Um, it wasn't uh, it wasn't bad, uh, and uh, uh, certainly, you know, it all got better as we became uh, new Avengers, and it became its its own thing. Um, but, you know, on a, on a very basic level, you know, Avengers Disassemble is a story about blowing up the version of Avengers that I'd been working on for six or seven years at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was, a, that was a difficult thing to, to have to do. But ultimately, in the, in the long term, uh, it, was a, it was a good move because the stuff that got built on the wreckage was uh, stronger and was bigger and was more primary and was much more successful than the stuff that we were doing at the time. So sometimes you have to do those things. Whose idea was it to bring Brian on the book? Um, it was, to some degree, it was Brian's, which sounds awful, and I don't mean it that way. Uh, Avengers Disassemble came out of another of the editorial retreats we were at. Um, you know, we, we do three or four of those a year where we get our editors and a bunch of our key talent together to plan out the year. Uh, and at this particular uh, retreat, you know, it was, it was uh, you know, back in the day. So, you know, Brian was there, Mark was there, uh, you know, a bunch of our other uh, folks were there. Um, 
and you know the conversation turned to Avengers, and one of the points that uh, Mark Miller made was that you know to him, uh, you know Avengers like Justice League should really be the book that has all the best characters in it. Like, why is it now that Avengers was you know whoever was in Avengers at that point, you know, and, and that, which meant that they were characters he knew. You know, Captain America was in Avengers and Thor was in Avengers, but there were also like four or five guys that he didn't know or care about and you know the, the you know the, the the biggest the biggest money win on avengers would be just to put all the best biggest characters in there you know why is spider-man not in there why is wolverine not in there they're not in there because tradition tells you that they shouldn't be but you know uh there's no there's no actual salient reason why other than tradition um and so that conversation went and caught fire and, and that was going to be a thing um, and at that point, you know, like that evening, I thought, oh, Mark's going to be writing Avengers. And, you know, Mark and Brian went out, you know, the, 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 that night or had breakfast that morning. Uh, and Brian, you know, had a conversation with Mark where he said, hey, I, I really want to do this. Like, I have the idea. I think I really, I really know exactly what to do with this. Would you mind if I did Avengers? And Mark said, no, 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 that, 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 that's fine. I, I wasn't necessarily planning on doing it myself. So we came in the next day, and then Brian was going to do Avengers. He, you know, he and, he and uh, Joe had a conversation, and uh, you know that was that was it. Brian was going to be the guy. It almost sounds like so you kind of knew what New Avengers was going to be before you actually had destroyed the Avengers and Avengers disassembled. Uh, yeah, yeah, we had we had New Avengers uh, figured out, and from from the beginning. Uh, you know, uh, again, while while I was sort of, you know, especially at the outset, I was an unwilling participant to some degree in <laughs> Avengers Disassembled. I always knew New Avengers would work. I always knew New Avengers was going to be commercial uh, dynamite because how could it not? Uh, that, that you know that, that that concept. Even if you get away, you know, put aside the specific stories that Brian's going to do and all the strengths he's going to bring to the the book, uh, and David Finch as a top flight artist and everything, just the basic idea of you're going to put all the big characters into one book again, uh, you know, including the characters that you could never get in Avengers before. Um, that's just. It's, of course it's going to work. <laughs> of course everybody's going to buy that book. Uh, no, there, was never, there was no question. Um, so, so uh, you know, I always, I always kind of felt at, at my gut that that was going to, that was going to play, that was going to work. You know, it's interesting. I was looking at the kind of the timeline of books because I forget how, the chronology sometimes. And it's interesting that you know you're launching new Avengers, and then at the same time, you guys had the miniseries uh, Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes. It's kind of an interesting kind of throwback to kind of the opposite of the new direction. Was that a conscious decision or something that had been planned for a while? I think I think that had to have been planned for a while. Again, it's been long enough now that I can't specifically uh, recall, but I think that that was something that was already uh, going on. It wasn't produced as a uh, you know in opposition to or as a as a an antithesis to uh, to Avengers Disassembled or New Avengers. I think it was just that was when. Uh, you know, I had that project and it was ready to go. I think it was probably more that it was timed around the time of Avengers 500. Mm. You know, on the anniversary issue, and oh, okay, we'll do this thing then. It'll be a celebratory thing, and we'll you know we'll do that. Uh, and you know, when Avengers 500 switched from being you know whatever it would have been to uh, Avengers Disassembled, uh, it didn't affect uh, that. Gotcha. It's interesting because that book, Earth's Mightiest Heroes, almost feels like. Kind of the the untold Spider Man, sorry, untold tales of Spider Man of that era, you know, like where you had 
back when Untold Tales of Spider-Man was happening, it was Spider-Man was going in a very different direction. So they did they had something that was you know classic old school stories that were fit in, fit in continuity. And then here we have the Avengers about to go in a bold new direction, and you so you have a nice kind of Avengers book that's set during a much more simpler time. Um, well, uh, you know, if, if that's the case, and certainly if you enjoyed it that way, uh, um, absolutely. Uh, I don't know that it was specifically planned that way. Just one of those that's accidents. Just, that's just kind of the way it turned out. What, um, of, of the kind of the, the new Avengers stories, which ones were you maybe the happiest that turned out or that you were happiest with seeing be done? Um, well, again, I think that, you know, New Avengers was a pretty good and a pretty strong book from the beginning. Um, but honestly, I'm sort of less, oddly, oddly less about specific stories than I am about specific beats or, or moments or things, you know, within those stories, you know. So, so for example, in Avengers Disassembled, the, you know, uh, the, the scene I always come back to is the scene with uh, Hank at, uh, at uh, the Wasp's uh, bedside as she's been injured during Disassembled. Uh, and it's just a very strong, very simple, very powerful, uh, very Brian uh you know, a, a scene of, of these two characters and kind of getting into the emotional grist of, of uh, you know, their relationship and what's going on, the lives they lead and so forth. Um, you know, there was a whole sequence in, I think it's, it's either New Avengers 14 or 15. It's one of the, the two Frank Cho issues um, that, that's all about, uh, you know, the Avengers and particularly Captain America trying to broker peace between Spider-Man, who's now an Avenger, and J. Jonah Jameson. <laughs> Uh, and it's it, that uh, it's all great. <laughs> it's all fun uh, and and uh, uh, interesting and terrific. Um, and certainly most of the individual uh, Civil War tie-in issues, particularly the Luke Cage one, which is which is phenomenal. But uh, I'm I'm saying that as somebody that worked on it, so discount that part <laughs> of it. Uh, apart from me, uh, you know, phenomenal. Um, but all of those were were very strong, and and uh, you know were books that uh, Brian was able to kind of dig into the characters, uh, and and uh, you know put them through uh, a bit of a crucible, uh, and see what made them tick. How did the pitch for Young Avengers get approved? Um. Well, again, the pitch for Young Avengers got approved partly because uh, even before Alan Heinberg, uh, you know, Joe at one point started thinking about Young Avengers. Like, he threw out the name Young Avengers at a certain point. He was talking, Young Avengers. And I was kind of going, oh, I don't know, Young Avengers. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, fine. So, uh, uh, you know, uh, Alan Heinberg appeared. C.B. Uh, Sapolsky had made contact with him. He had been working on, at that point, The O.C. and a few other shows, and he had dropped some comic book references in. And, uh, you know, we met Alan, and at a certain point, Joe threw the, I, this, this notion to him, Young Avengers, uh, and Alan went away and came back, uh, you know, with this idea for, for what Young Avengers would be, and he and I spoke about it, um, and, uh, you know, he, he, he pretty much convinced me just in the, you know, in the, in the selling of it, in the pitching of it, uh, that it was a, a thing that would work, uh, and, uh, you know, we had Jimmy Chung lined up, and uh, he and Jim uh, formed a, a pretty tightly knit uh, two-man team. Um, and uh, you know, it was it was sort of a new, a uh, new, a different flavor of uh, of Avengers, um, but one that was still sort of steeped in the the 
uh, you know, the, the history, the legacy of that Avengers team in, in a way that I found appealing. It's interesting, too, because that, that, that title, uh, before it came out, speaking as a fan, it, it felt like everyone thought they knew what it was going to be, and it definitely wasn't that in, in the best way possible. So I guess it's kind of you know taking those expectations or lack thereof and saying, no, this is actually something amazing. Well, sure. That was, I mean, you know, if you look in, I think it was, I think we ran in Avengers 500. You know, we did a little, a little self-made ad. Uh, you know, the very first promo piece for Young Avengers is in, I, like I say, I believe it's Avengers 500. And it was just this ad that was four horizontal images showing you bits of the four main characters. And the ad was just, you know, Thor, question mark, Captain America, question mark, mm-hmm. Iron Man, question mark. And then it was like Young Avengers, the logo. Um, they're not what you think. And that was that was kind of the the operating philosophy of the series. Like we knew people would immediately, uh, you know, have a have a, a knee jerk reaction to what this would be and how awful it would be and so forth. And so, uh, you know, our 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 goal and our game plan was as much as possible to understand uh, those expectations and then to defy those expectations. And it seems like it worked out pretty well, uh, as as those characters are really. You know, very fundamental to the Marvel Universe now, even beyond just Young Avengers. Like they're 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 now for the most part scattered throughout like half a dozen different titles, uh, and are are you know real legitimate, no fooling, you know backbone Marvel characters. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you've worked on a, a ton of obviously the the bigger events that Marvel's put out over the last decade. Which one do you think um, was your favorite, just from like kind of a structural how it kind of unfolded? one honestly they all for, for, for one thing once they're done typically I don't have time to even look really look back at them I'm, I'm moving on the next one um, you know when they end for you is you know two months after they've ended for me sure. um, you know I think uh, uh, you know going back uh, clearly the, the, the biggest one uh, at least of, of uh, you know the last decade uh, you know, biggest one is Civil War. Like, that's the one that everybody's going to remember, and especially now, uh, you know, when we're on the cusp of, uh, you know, the Captain America Civil War movie coming out. Um, that was just a story that really, uh, you know, was of its time and of its era and, and uh, touched a particular uh, nerve in people. Uh, but I also, you know, I also really like The Secret Invasion. I think there's a lot of good stuff, uh, a lot of fun ideas, in, in, and a lot of uh, good uh, character stuff in uh, Secret Invasion as well. Um, so it's not even like you know I so love you know Civil War as you know more than the the ones we did around it or you know that or House of M or Siege or you know pick your pick your event. Uh, it's really though just, just you know I, I I'm busy moving forward. I I can't pick one out of that. Let me ask a different question. Similar though, um, which which event pitch do you think hit you the hardest? Like when you first heard it, like that you were like I'm in. Which isn't to say anything anything negative about the others, but like which one, right from the pitch, you were like, I'm, I want to do this. Uh, again, uh, you know, that's that's not an easy question to answer. Partly because so many of these did not start out as an event pitch; they just started out as story pitches. Like Secret Invasion wasn't intended to be an event. Secret Invasion was just a storyline that Brian was building in the Avengers books and had been, you know, sort of secretly from the beginning. Uh, and at a certain point. It, <laughs> I, I totally screwed him, but in the best way possible. <laughs> I totally screwed him um, because, uh, again, we were going to a, a, an editorial retreat. Um, and this was you know, the year after Civil War, 
and we knew a secret invasion was bubbling up, and Brian was worried that it was going to be, uh, you know, turned into a big uh, event series, and he would kind of, uh, you know, it would become too big. He would lose control of it. He couldn't, you know, make it what it was. And uh, you know, he and I had a had a conversation beforehand where he, he was just like, you know, Prom- promise me you'll have my back and, and we won't do this as a thing. And I said, yeah, absolutely. I'll back you up on this for, for sure. And we got into the, the room and he started pitching the thing. And at a certain point, our publisher, uh, Dan Buckley, said, that's, that's, that's not an Avenger story. That's the event for next year. And Brian turned to me and I kind of shrugged my shoulders and went, that's what it is. <laughs> uh, but again, it you know it 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 uh, it worked out um, because uh, you know he uh, he had the idea and he he had the goods. Um, but again, it's what's it's you know very it's not very often that these things are pitched as these big stories. In almost every case, they either grow into that or they uh, you know they come together. You know, we've told the story a bunch of times about. Uh, you know, how Civil War came together. Civil War came together because, uh, you know, what was originally supposed to be in that spot was, uh, you know, in the, in the initial plan was World War Hulk. And World War Hulk wasn't ready. There wasn't enough time. Uh, you know, we only just, they only just shot the Hulk off into space, and there wasn't enough time for him to go through the the process of going from slave to gladiator to king to, you know, leader of a vengeful army coming back to the earth. And we spent about two days going around in circles trying to find a way to make this work, and everybody was frustrated. And, uh, you know, again, guys went back back out to their hotels that night, and, uh, you know, came in the next day, and, you know, it was just like a one, two, three, uh, you know, uh, punch where, uh, you know, Mark threw out the initial seed of, of Civil War, and then Brian followed it up with a bit, and then Jeff Lowe followed it up with the whose side are you on tagline, and suddenly we had a thing that everybody was excited about and that we were all interested in and that we very quickly boiled down who's going to, you know, who's going to be on what side and how is this going to work, and, um, you know, so that was, that was never pitched. That was just, you know, that was devised, that was pitched verbally in the room. You know, it was all kind of invented. Um, so there was no, uh, you know, there was no real chance to react to something mm-hmm. uh, other than, I remember coming into that retreat, and we had just done House of M, uh, you know, and we said, well, we're going to have to do an event for this year, and, and I said, well, you know, the one thing I know for sure is I'm not doing it, because <laughs> I did last year, I did House of M, I'm not doing it, and that third day, we came up with Civil War, and I kind of went, well, I guess I'm doing it. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's all, you know, it's all my, it's all, it's all my books, it's all my characters, I guess I'm doing it, and so, you know, I did, and I've ended up doing most of them Now, I have some listener questions. Uh, first one's from Century459. He asks, uh, can you share about your editorial responsibilities at Marvel and how they've evolved from your earliest days with the company to the present? Um, well, I do more now. You know, I was, as an assistant editor, my job was to assist the editor in doing whatever needed to be done. Uh, you know, in my current role, I directly edit a whole swath of titles directly. Uh, you know, the Avengers books, Captain America, uh, Silver Surfer, uh, Iron Man, um, you know, and, and such. But then I over, also oversee uh, the activities of a bunch of our editors directly and all of our editors generally, um, you know, in terms of coordinating stuff, in terms of making sure 
that the block and tackle of our business gets taken care of and our budgets are met and, you know, we're earning enough money to keep the lights on um, <laughs> and, you know, coming up with ideas for, for stories or ideas for projects and, uh, you know, sort of everything that entails. Uh, you know, I could, I could talk for 45 minutes on what the, what the job is, but I don't have the 45 minutes, so. That's fair enough. Um, we have another question from the same listener. Um, how much of these responsibilities involving, involve keeping track of current and past continuity? only in the in the broadest sense um you know uh, uh, people uh, fans out in the world uh, tend to think that there's one of two systems and one system is that somewhere there's a master book that has in it everything that's happened in the marvel universe <laughs> cross-referenced and jotted down and everybody you know goes to that tome as though it is the bible or the torah to 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 glean the information they need to tell their stories. And then the other people believe there's absolutely nothing at all, and people just run around doing whatever the hell they want. Uh, <laughs> and the reality is, it's, it's somewhere in the middle. Um, you know, the line I use a lot, I use it with our editors here, and I use it when this question comes up, uh, is that, uh, you know, the continuity is there to serve the stories. The stories are not there to serve the continuity. Uh, you know, which is to say, you know, continuity and history and all that stuff that we talked about earlier and that, uh, you know, people like and that you like, it's a tool. It's a thing that's there. Um, but it's there to make the stories better. Uh, at the point at which the stories become about the continuity, they kind of stop becoming interesting to a lot of people. They become bookkeeping. They become, you know, monks talking in, in the, the language of monks to other monks. Uh, and that's not really, really good, not really healthy for the characters, for the stories, uh, and for the universe. So we keep track of things, but we keep track of things somewhat loosely, and a lot of it is just what's in my brain. People ask me, and I remember, because I remember stuff good. <laughs> Can you hang on a second? Absolutely. Uh, another question from a listener. Um, this one is a little bit longer, but uh, it says, Since I'm from the Netherlands, I wonder how and if, in your perception, Marvel has changed to accommodate international audiences from the growth of comics in the 90s to the cinematic universe now. Um, well, obviously, I think the most, uh, the most obvious change is that more people around the world are aware of who the Marvel characters are, uh, and that's almost entirely due to the films. Um, and the fact that they've been so successful around the world, uh, and that helps to open up open up doors uh, and to make uh, the possibility of uh, you know the Marvel stories in whatever form uh, we create them, whether it's comics, whether it's animation, whether it's on game platforms, whether it's in consumer products, you know, and, and really it's all of that, uh, you know, to gain wider acceptance. Uh, you know, around the globe, and that process will will continue to continue. I'm sure, and will. So one of the places where um, the 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 synergy, the acquisition by Disney, was a huge uh, help to Marvel, because uh, you know, Marvel at the point uh, where Disney uh, bought it, you know, was having success with the films, but was only beginning to kind of get. Uh, arms around the fact that there's a whole global community uh, and that, that, that uh, you know, people around the world love this stuff uh, and want more of it, 
uh, and Disney has a whole infrastructure in place, um, you know, from years of doing Disney films and, and uh, Disney television and, and all this stuff that, you know, Marvel could just kind of, you know, fold into and piggyback on and suddenly had a much greater uh, reach into places that we've never had in the past. Um, so that, too, was a, was a big advantage and one of the things that's changed uh, since, certainly since the 90s. Oh, for sure. Uh, another listener question. Uh, you've spent the better part of your adult life at Marvel. You've shaped the Marvel Universe and continue to shape it, but how has the Marvel Universe shaped you? <laughs> um, I, I don't know. Uh, uh, you know, I've, I've probably spent more, more time overall, uh, you know, lifetime-wise, thinking about the Marvel Universe than just about anything else, and the <laughs> Marvel characters than just about anything else, including all the members of my family who will be happy to hear this. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, so, uh, you know, I suppose, uh, uh, you know, the, the philosophies of the Marvel Universe are not so, so different, or not so removed from the, the philosophies that, uh, you know, govern me myself, but that's sort of a highfalutin ridiculous answer to have. I don't know. I own too, way too many comic books. That's, that's what, uh, it, what it's, uh, how it's influenced me. <laughs> I have way, way too much stuff that is Marvel-related, tons of it. I can imagine. Uh, and and I'm, I'm, I'm just as bad as any fan. Uh, I'm just as bad as, as, as the worst fan, uh, which is to say... I can easily be tricked into buying the same thing again that I already have again if it's packaged slightly differently in a way that appeals to me. Um, I used to joke that I could stand in my house, any, in any place in my house, any point, and reach my arm out, and within arm's length, I could pull that back a copy of the story that's in Fantastic Four number one. <laughs> it's, only, it's only slightly an exaggeration, but I must own, you know, from, from the days when I was looking for Origins of Marvel Comics, I must have copies of that story in so many uh, trade paperbacks and hardcovers and reprints and foreign editions and, and, and uh, you know, things that, that you know, literally, uh, you know, it, it's only a slight exaggeration to say I can, I can lay hands on it you know, at arm's length anywhere. So that's an impact. That's a thing that it, it, it's done. Absolutely. Uh, if you had to pick one, which classic Marvel tool or instrument would you choose? <laughs> uh, I assume you mean from the universe, yes. not like the T-square or yeah, no. <laughs> the, the hot wax machine. No, no. Uh, it would definitely be the hot wax machine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I... Uh, <laughs> I, I honestly don't know if I have a better answer than the hot wax machine. I'm now, that, I'm, now, I'm now thinking about it seriously, and I don't think I can top the hot wax machine. That's okay. We can leave that one there. We're gonna, we can move along. Um, if you had the choice of any possible creative team at the peak of their creative powers, who would be an ideal match in your mind to any specific character or property? That's, uh, that's a very good question in the abstract. Um, in reality... Uh, it's it's not as wonderful a question for me as it is for the folks who, who ask it. Fair enough. And and and, and the reason is, um, you know, I, I get to do this every day. Um, you know, so if you're talking about you know creators who are uh, you know still among the the living, uh, and, and I want to hire them, 
I can call them. I can do that. And assuming that they actually want to do the thing that I would like them to do, you know, they can accept that and they can they can go. Uh, certainly, you know, when you're talking about creators who uh, you know are no longer with us, uh, and that you know this this uh, you know this question kind of you know opens up the door and allows for that. Um, you know, so much of what made those creators who they were were the time they they worked in and the particular idiom that they worked on. You know, I may love the work of Harvey Kurtzman, and maybe I think that a Harvey Kurtzman Fantastic Four story or Spider-Man story would be the greatest thing ever, but I don't think Harvey Kurtzman would have felt that way. So, you know, either I could program the ghost of Harvey Kurtzman like a robot to carry out my Spider-Man story, which probably wouldn't be very good, or I could acknowledge the fact that the stuff that made Harvey, and I just pulled Harvey, you know, off the top of my head, uh, you know, Harvey Kurtzman's work so excellent was the particular sensibility and point of view and skill set that he brought to bear on the stories he did, and that doesn't necessarily translate over into doing a great Spider-Man story. You know, I don't know that a Will Eisner Spider-Man story would have been as excellent as somebody else's. Um, you know, I don't know that he would have had any interest in that type of story, particularly past a certain point, um, you know, whether at the peak of their powers or not. Um, so, so I don't really have, like, a super good answer to that. <laughs> um, you know, the, the living are still people who might be able to do the thing that I want them to do, and the, the deceased are all people who have been defined by the work that they did. And I can, you know, you could sometimes make a leap from, you know, from something uh, where somebody never got to do a particular thing, and, oh, I bet they would have been, been you know, great on that, but that also presumes that they would have had the same interest in it that you do. Um, so, so really, I don't, I don't know. That's okay. That's a long, a long version of that answer. That's okay. Uh, another listener question. Uh, this is from Shatsi. He asks, uh, you grew up reading comic books. Can you still experience the magic of comics after so many years in the business? Or has the job changed how you experience comics as a reader today? Um, well, the job can't help but change how you experience comics as a reader because, you know, you understand the mechanics of how a comic book works, how a comic book page works, how, how the various elements come together. But, but yeah, I, don't, I, I think the magic of comics still exists for me anyway. I still go to the store every Wednesday uh, and buy stuff, uh, which is one of the reasons I have so much stuff. Um, you know, so I'm I'm still reading uh, you know stuff that's not you know not necessarily Marvel stuff. I get a bundle of all the Marvel books every week as well. Um, so it's not like I'm not reading the Marvel books, but I read a swath of stuff, you know, all across uh, you know the, the the types and styles and and different approaches and different uh, genres of of comics. Uh, and I think that there's a ton of great material out in the world right now, more so than there's ever been readily available for people. Um, so yeah, I think I can still experience the, you know, the wonder and the magic of comics. I go every week and, you know, the thing that you're always constantly looking for is, is you know, one of those all-time great uh, books. Uh, and every once in a while, you know, you hit one and it's like, ah, here, there, there it is. That's, that, 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 that's terrific. And, you know, those get, you know, every, everybody in the world gets to get the copy of those from me because I can't wait to, uh, to share something uh, like that with a bunch of people who may not have seen it before. Absolutely. Um, of the comics you're reading now, like, what, what, what are you reading? Like, what are you really enjoying? 
anticipated that that would be the follow-up question. Well, it's hard not to. Um, I, you know, I'm uh, I'm reading a huge swath of stuff. Uh, I, I mean, literally a huge swath. Um, but it starts to become difficult when I when it, when you ask me like, what's you know, what in particular is excellent? Um, you know, I can point to sort of the things that everybody kind of acknowledges are excellent. Saga is excellent. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, in terms of, like, the thing that, uh, you know, uh, that is that thing, um, you know, the last two or three that I can think of, uh, and there weren't monthly comics. I, I, I read them, you know, as, as graphic novels. Uh, you know, Scott McCloud's last book, The Sculptor, Mm-hmm. I thought was 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 pretty terrific, and really enjoyed. And uh, uh, Jason uh, Youngbluth's uh, Weapon Brown, uh, which is a collection of uh, uh, strips he did uh, first online and before that uh, in uh, a small press uh, run, was also uh, a pretty phenomenal. Um, I also liked, although not to the same degree as some of his earlier works, uh, Alex Robinson's new book, uh, Our Expanding Universe. So, again, in terms of, like, you know, uh, 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 monthly comics, uh, I still read a ton of stuff, Um, you know, and in any given week, uh, you know, I pick up, uh, you know... (laughs) Uh, more than more than a few dollars worth of uh, of books there, but it's it's tending to be, I think, the bigger uh, and and uh, less serial related works that that you know give me that hit. What uh, what I mean, you, you've edited and worked on so many different titles and characters. Is there is there one left that you haven't been able to do that you really want to do, or have you kind of hit all your bases? Um, in terms of the Marvel characters. Um, you know, the one that I have left, um, and there's more than one, but, but the, the one sort of primary one that I've, I've not ever really done is Daredevil. I've done a Daredevil one-shot here or there. I did a Daredevil annual as part of some annuals a couple of years ago, but I've never actually done, a, a, you know, any kind of real run on Daredevil. So, so that's a, that's a, that's a place. Um, you know, and then there's other, you know, there's other characters I haven't really done. I've done some X-Men stuff, but not in air quotes, real X-Men stuff, um, you know, and, and uh, you know, that's a, that's, a, that's a concept that I know fills some people out in the world with dread as they fear what my X-Men would be like, um, <laughs> you know, um, but, uh, you know, uh, most of the, most of the primary uh, Marvel stuff I've, I've, I've worked on in a fairly significant way at this point. Mm-hmm. And what, uh, outside of Marvel, what would you, like, if you could do one non-Marvel title that you'd be editing and working on, what would it be? Um, well, I guess, uh, you know, if you boil it all down, you know, there's, there's, there's plenty of stuff. My favorite superhero is The Flash, but, uh, I would, I would be editing Superman. I would do Superman. I was thinking in my head, he's going to say something that, that involves Superman and Batgirl. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, maybe so, maybe so, but it, you know, definitely Superman. I think, and I don't mean to, I don't mean to to, to turn this into a slag fest, but I think uh, uh, Superman over the last, I don't know, seven eight years has been uh, woefully uh, mistreated or undertreated, despite the, the the very good efforts of a lot of talented people. I think that uh, people are just coming at that character from the wrong place and with the wrong mindset and I feel like it could be fixed like that 
you just need the, the, the person in, in place, you know, who's, who's got, kind of got, not that vision, but that, that vector. Uh, and I feel like I could turn Superman around in a, in a heartbeat. Now, I, I wanted to ask you, I know you're, you're very active on Tumblr. I'm impressed that you keep answering people's questions there, because it feels like uh, there's a lot of people who kind of come at you very, I don't even know what the word is, aggressively. Sure, uh, sure. Not, not with a lot of respect, but I'm always interested in in reading your responses, because, you know, I, I think people should be more respectful in general, but I just find it uh, impressive that you keep you keep doing it, and you keep kind of giving it a fair shake, I would say. I mean, the, the thing to understand, uh, for people to understand, is, you know, one, I don't take it very seriously, uh, which is one of the things that irritates some of those people, because every once in a while, I'll give a, I'll give a facetious or a smart-aleck answer to something, and they'll get very, very angry that I'm not taking, you know, their, their question about, you know, the guy in, in a, a lion vest with a fur collar uh, more seriously than <laughs> I am. Um, you know, and, and some of it is, like, none of them... Nobody there, nothing that's there really touches my world. Um, you know, I love, I love the, the fans. I love the Marvel readers, and I, I love people that care enough to, you know, to ask questions and to be involved, so long as they're, you know, sort of on the right side of the behaving well line. Um, you know, I love Marvel's readers, and it's, you know, it's, I hope shown by the fact that I spend so much time interacting with them, including the ones that are very angry at me or very angry at Marvel and thus, by extension, me. Um, you know, there are certainly people who will, you know, yell at me about something that, that has had nothing to do with anything that I did, but because I'm there and I'm the face of Marvel, I'm the guy that gets yelled at. But I'm also the guy that chooses to be there, so I sign up for that and I accept that as consequence of, of being in the game, um, you know, and I do it because, uh, you know, if the internet had existed back when I was a younger reader, uh, you know, in, you know, whether, whether, you know, uh, at six or seven or whether in my teens or whether in college or what, you know, you bet I'd have been all over that all the time. Uh, and, uh, you know, as a, as, a, as a teen and a young college reader, I was very vocal about the stuff that I liked and didn't like and the stuff that I thought and didn't think about comics and didn't really know what the heck I was talking about. I was exactly the same asshole as a lot of these <laughs> same assholes. So I can relate to it on that level and go, well, uh, you know, I kind of know what's there uh, underneath all of this. Uh, uh, you know, opposing uh, aggression and, and uh, you know, faux outrage. Uh, and, and so, you know, I try, to, I try to give back to what extent, you know, I can. Here's a, here's a place where you can ask a question and get a relatively straight answer, depending on what the question is that you ask. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and that's really, you know, all there is to it. It's just a, <laughs> a thing I pick away at, uh, you know, every now and again in the evenings or sometimes a, you know, in the morning when I, I come in, you know, just to warm up, I'll do, I'll do 10 minutes or 20 minutes of, of just answering questions until my brain is completely working to focus on, you know, whatever issue of, of Avengers has to be dealt with that day. Now, as we wrap up here, what, can, uh, what, what should we be reading? Obviously, we should be reading everything Marvel puts out, right? But, uh, but, but in, well, partic think... in particular, what do, you, what do you really want people to be reading and giving um, a shot? one thing. I think the wonderful thing, and it really is a, a wonderful thing, 
uh, is that right at this moment, the Marble Line in particular is about as diverse a line as it's ever been. Um, that the types of comics and the types of stories that we're doing uh, and the different uh, appeals that we have to different uh, uh, segments of the audience and styles and approaches of comics um, are, are about as broad as they could ever be. There is a Marvel comic for just about everybody. Uh, there, isn't ne- there isn't necessarily one comic for everybody, no. but there's something for almost anybody. And I think pound, pound for pound, our batting average is really, really good. Um, I'm very uh, pleased with the, the work that all of uh, the editors and creators up here uh, have been doing across the line. Um, so I don't, again, I don't know that there's one specific book uh, you know, I, I would like more people to read uh, my Silver Surfer series because I like it a whole lot. Um, but that's, you know, that's more about me than it is about them. Uh, you know, I think Thor is really uh, phenomenal. I think Ms. Marvel is excellent. Uh, Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur is, is great. Uh, Squirrel Girl is uh, worth all the accolades it's been getting recently. Um, I think All New X-Men uh, is uh, a, a heck of a good book. Um, you know, uh, uh, Amazing Spider-Man continues to be, uh, you know, the little engine that could, that, that, that's never... Uh, that's never fallen be- below a certain level. Um, you know, we've put a lot of effort into making Iron Man uh, the preeminent character, and we're just about to have the second Iron Man book, International Iron Man, uh, drop. And, uh, you know, that gives you two different flavors of uh, Iron Man adventure uh, every month, uh, both of which are pretty cool. Um, you know, there's just, uh, there's, there's a lot of everything, a lot of different things. Um, you know, I don't know that I can boil it down to a single book. Um, That's okay. You don't need to. <laughs> I, I should buy them all. That's what I'm hearing. Well, it, or at least you should find the ones that that that, that appeal to you, because um, because you can. Uh, they are not all the same. Similar, no. but not the same. No, absolutely. Yeah, there's been a lot of uh, su- not necessarily surprise books, but books that. I didn't expect to be as maybe solid as they are, or I hadn't, hadn't expected a story going that direction. I think the biggest one for me is Vision. Uh, that that book's sure. incredible. Sure. It's, yeah, I mean, and, and again, a very different book, very different from anything else that anybody is publishing, really. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely, and it's creepy. <laughs> like, I never, I never thought of the Vision as really being a creepy character, but uh, Tom King's definitely made him that way. Well, I'm glad you're enjoying it. <laughs> Um, any um, kind of anything you want to tease us for the upcoming either the currently unfolding standoff or the upcoming Civil War two? Um, well, I think uh, yeah, obviously we're in the the midst the early midst of standoff right now. Um, the uh, Captain America seventy fifth issue number seven Sam Wilson Captain America number seven. Um, it's a big shock a block uh, fifty six page extravaganza. Uh, with excellent, an excellent uh, big standoff connected lead story by uh, Nick Spencer and Daniel Acuna, um, and then you know backed up by a number of shorter pieces by excellent creators uh, uh, dealing with sort of the history and the, the legacy of Captain America. It's a really great uh, one shot. Even if you've not been following standoff, uh, I think you could pick that up and uh, not really feel like you're coming in in the middle. Uh, and then Civil War II is just on the horizon. It's, it's not the same thing as Civil War, 
but it's exactly the same thing as Civil War, which is to say uh, the, the, uh, the particular issues that the Marvel heroes will be grappling with are as relevant uh, today as the issues that they were grappling with 10 years ago in the original Civil War, um, and they'll be divided uh, philosophically and uh, ethically uh, based on each character's reaction to these issues, uh, and there is no real right side and there is no real wrong side. It's kind of a really balanced argument, which makes for, for really good, exciting, meaty drama uh, as these characters try to uh, work out for themselves uh, and, you know, for the readers, uh, you know, what's the right thing to do, what's the wrong thing to do, where, where do you draw the line, how do you deal uh, with these issues. Um, so it's not the same story as Civil War One by any means, but it's got enough of a similarity in terms of its DNA that if you really loved the original Civil War, uh, you're going to find a lot of the same kind of, of ethos in Civil War Two. Uh, and hopefully it'll be just as successful and people will uh, love it just as much. And it turns out, by coincidence, I wasn't paying any attention, there's a, there's a movie. <laughs> uh, there's going to be a movie, and I bet that'll be pretty good, too. It definitely looks like it's uh, going to be one hell of a movie. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today, Tom. I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, chatting with us about your time at Marvel and uh, what we can look forward to as well. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. All right.